0: Listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world.
1: www.cityworldradio.com.
0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElveni. Join us every
1: Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, uh, welcome to the program, Intelligent Talk. The website is IntelligentTalk.com. We're very pleased to have Mr. David Amram with us. His website is com. Is that right, David, that I get your website correctly?
0: Yeah,
1: Great. So let me just do a brief introduction. And uh, David is a jazz legend. He's a pioneer in the French horn. He's also a piano player, a flute player. He's done an amazing uh, series of things, including the music for the Manchurian Candidate, Splendor is the Grass with Warren Beatty. Um, he was picked by um, Leonard Bernstein to be the first um, in-house What would you pick for the first composer in residence for the New York Philharmonica, right, David? Right. Yes. And uh, also, he's known just an amazing series of people. I mean, from Jackson Pollock to Franz Klein to Giacometti to Jack Kerouac, who he worked on his film, Pull My Daisy, a seminal film. Jack Kerouac, of course, wrote On the Road. And um, he wrote a 1968 book called uh, Vibrations and a number of other books, including a book about collaborating with um, Jack Kerouac. So, David, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's My pleasure. I just, I just wanted to just briefly back up. You're from Pennsylvania. I wrote. I remember reading in your book. Um, how did you uh, get into music? How did you know you had a talent for for music, David? How did that? What was that calling? How did that come to you?
0: Well, I never thought much about having a talent, but I fell in love with it when I was six years old. My uncle David took me to hear the Philadelphia Orchestra. And when I heard performance of Peter and the Wolf with Leopold Stokowski conducting it, I knew somehow that I wanted to be part of that in some way. And I thought about that when I was just conducting my Elegy for Violin and Orchestra at Carnegie Hall just two nights ago. Basically, a classical composer who loves jazz and Latin music and world music and Continuing to write classical music was based on hearing that Philadelphia Orchestra concert as a little tiny boy when I was living on a farm in Feasterville, Pennsylvania. Okay. Hearing that music, I knew somehow that was something I hoped I could be part of in some way.
1: You, you talked about it in your book, Vibrations, growing up in Pennsylvania. You encountered quite a bit of anti-Semitism. Um, you then find your way into music. You go into uh, Paris the 1950s, arguably the highlight, perhaps, of the 20th century Paris in the 50s, or well some people would say. You meet such interesting people as, as Giacometti. You met him in a, in a cafe, is that right?
0: Yes, well, it turns out that Giacometti had played French horn, which I did, when he was in high school and a lot of the artists and painters would come to hear me at little places that I played way back in 1955 with the Camillon and little places in Saint-Germain-de-Presne. And a lot of the painters and artists and writers all hung out with one another. And because I was playing jazz, which they enjoyed, and playing jazz with the French horn, Jack Metty was particularly interested because he had been a French horn player and he was such a wonderful, down-to-earth guy. And because I spoke a little Italian as well as French. I could communicate with him and he was just a wonderful, warm, brilliant person. And very for real. All of those people that I met at that time and still meet, for the most part, are super for real.
1: Did you, did you have any idea he was going to be the, one of the most famous sculptors of the 20th century? Were you aware of his fame when you were discussing No,
0: I, I, just, I had no idea Okay, anything okay. about him, except he was this very gracious, curly-haired, deep, warm person. And I just liked him so much that I found out later on he never bragged or talked about his fame, because he wasn't really interested in that as much as he was in what he was doing. He knew that his, the old saying, by your works ye shall be known, was kind of the unspoken mantra of all these people that I met. They were really working people that loved what they were doing and wanted to do a good job very inspiring to meet people like that and to try to be that kind of person myself as a
1: result. Yes, I mean, you met. I'm just going to go through some of the highlights of people that you met, Dave, and let you comment. I mean, obviously, Jack Kerouac, um, who wrote the book On the Road, The Beat Generation, he did the film Pull My Daisy, which was a famous film. And I believe you worked on the music for, for Pull My Daisy, correct? Yes, I,
0: Jack asked me to do that, and he also asked me to appear in it. I said, I'm not an actor. He said, no one else in the film is either, except for Kelfine Sirig. So I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And he said, just be you. That was my introduction to the Stanislavski method, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Except in, in the Stanislavski method, they would say, just be you. But the you that you are is also the person that you're portraying in the play or the or the film, so therefore you have to become that person, and that person has to become you, and that way it's for real. It doesn't look like you're acting; you can, are you are
1: becoming. Can you tell me, David, what what Jack Kerouac? What do you think the Beat Generation... I mean, we spoke about this a little bit when I saw you do your wonderful New Year's performance, but basically, it was kind of rebellion against the conformist 50s. Is that correct? And a fear of communism. And it was, it was a way to sort of rebel through Beat...
0: No, that was, that was part of the whole era. And the, I never knew there was a Beat Generation, which I'm now supposed to have been part of, until I read about that way after On the Road had come out. Okay. This was something that was related... For the last several hundred years of people who, from generation to generation, are the recipients of the gifts of those who came before them, who take the time to see a gifted person and tell them, yes, you can do this too. You have to tell your story. You have to be yourself. The stars of Greenwich Village, where I met Jack, were the waiters. The bartenders and the waitresses and some of the painters and the musicians were people who were part of that whole picture of all kinds of people from every walk of life. And when On the Road came out and got a phenomenal review, they had to think of some way to justify a guy from Lowell, Massachusetts who looked like a French Canadian woodcutter. <laughs> Being such a regular, warm, egalitarian person who was so brilliant and who was so loving and kind to others, they had to excuse the success of his book by giving it some kind of a brand name. Jack despised that. Lawrence Ferlagetti, who's turning 100, refuses to be considered to be part of any beat generation. I certainly wasn't a part of a beat generation, I'm a classical composer that was blessed to meet Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and painters and poets and all these wonderful people and we weren't particularly rebelling against anything or trying to be anything different. We were trying to bring compassion, excellence, and appreciation of the arts to all people we met. Trying to be decent people ourselves in a society that often enhanced selfishness and greed and We were the kids of another generation that came before us who had it much worse than we did, who brought us up during the Depression with the idea that we all could help and inspire one another. There were ideals which are very old, which have nothing to do with beat. And Jack always said the only beat thing about me are the Catholic beatitudes, which I was born of as a churchgoer so he was the least likely person to be considered to be a beat
1: or a beatnik. So David if I could just ask you so, so he did, that's interesting. I didn't realize that he rejected that term uh, beat and that he was all just about you saying excellence in his work and being a, a very decent sweet person and he did not consider himself a beatnik. that's interesting who's sort of the leading light of that generation arguably
0: Sure well he, his book was something today, Ralph. All these years later, On the Road came out in 1957. Today, it's in translated languages all over the world. And he wrote over 30 other books, some of which haven't been published. And one of his favorites, Visions of Cody, wasn't published until after he had passed away. That was just one of his many wonderful books. And that's the one that got a phenomenal review in the New York Times in 1957, that overnight made him an international literary star.
1: I and didn't. Of course he, I didn't realize he had written those other books, David. And just for a personal nature, he was a very kind person, right? A very sweet person, kind of like an Andy Kaufman from, from what I've read.
0: Well, I, I think I didn't know Andy Kaufman. I think he was much more grounded and also was not an exhibitionist and didn't show off. Andy Coffer was brilliant. But Jack, when you read his work, he was a, a writer. And Stravinsky said, music expresses itself. And Jack felt his books would say it all. People say, what was it like with Jack? What was he like? I say, read his books. That's exactly what he was like. He believed, just as Lester Young told all his friends, the great saxophone player, tell your story. Jack was all about telling his story. And he also loved America in a very special way and all of the people who lived in it, just like the composer George Gershwin, who celebrated the beauties of jazz and gospel and Afro-American music and traditional Jewish music and all the kinds of music that he grew up with in Brooklyn, in New York, and made it into something classical and lasting. Jack took all those experiences of everything from hobos to the heads of state, and in his books made his life experiences real by telling his and their story to all of us,
1: to inspire us to also try to tell our story. Okay. Let me turn you, if I could, to some of the other people, because there's so many interesting people you interacted with. Arthur Miller, the famous playwright who wrote Death of a Salesman. You, you worked with him on, on the music on one of his plays, correct, uh, David?
0: I worked on, actually on two of his plays on the premiere of After the Fall, which opened up the Lincoln Center Theater in 1964, and I was the music director for that for three years. And then he had a beautiful one called Incident at Vichy, and that had his New York premiere about two years later. And it was just so terrific being with him because he'd been a boy crooner when his family moved from Harlem to Brooklyn during the Great Depression, the beginning of it after the stock market collapsed and his family's business and everything collapsed. They had to move from a beautiful place in Harlem to in the to Brooklyn, New York, and he worked on the docks, and he sang, and was a boy crooner. Just like the director, Ilya Kazan, he loved Chopin, and Bach, and Mozart, and loved jazz, and blues, and traditional American musics. He saw the beauty of America, and Arthur Miller also had a great sense of the beauty of all the.
1: Eli Kazanico directed Marlon Brando and On the Waterfront, that very famous film, which Really went on to make Marlon Brando, That and Street, Need Desire so famous. But in, in, in your book, Vibrations, and talking about Arthur Miller, one of the passages that I found interesting, he says to you basically, "Don't sell out. Don't become like a Hollywood guy. Don't trade for commercialism." And Arthur Miller had this great center, this root to himself of like talking about the common man and justice, and that's sort of what Death of a Salesman reflects. And did you did you see that in just in speaking with Miller? Did he inspire you to basically not spend too much time in Hollywood and be and spend your time in New York? Was that something that was a guiding in life for you, your time with him. No, he,
0: he just said, "Keep it for real. Do what you felt you were put here to do." Okay, that's exactly what Dizzy Gillespie told me when I met him in 1951, when I had just turned 20. Because I had turned 20 in November 17th of 1950. I met Dizzy, I believe, in January or February of 1951, and there I was a kid, and Dizzy not only spent hours telling me about the diaspora of African American people before they came to America, of the peoples from Africa and all the places they went and the music that they contributed and the music that they took with them in their journeys but also that everyone had a heritage or heritages. They were all precious and whatever you were born with you should learn to learn about and love share that with others and in exchange learn what other people had as a heritage and that they were all precious. And once you appreciated your own roots, you could appreciate everyone else's roots and you could be a citizen of the world in the highest sense of that word and be what they would say in Yiddish, a real mensch.
1: Did you collaborate with with Dizzy Gillespie uh, as well, David? Well... He certainly didn't
0: need me. He was when I met him in 1951. He had made that extraordinary series of recordings of, with Chano Pozo, one called Kubop cool in 1947. I collaborated with him several <laughs> decades later. In 1977, we were the first Americans, along with Earl Heimstein, gets to go to Havana, Cuba. But I had... Known him ever since he befriended me, as he did thousands, thousands of musicians and people. And he was, again, one of those people like Arthur Miller and Jackson Pollock and the other Kerouac, who had high standards, who was creative, who was innovative, who gave much more than he received, and encouraged everyone to be creative and to do what they felt they were put here to do.
1: So he was an all-around very decent person David, right, who a uh, another very decent guy.
0: Oh, he was Dizzy was extraordinary and his humor and his kindness and his brilliance and his desire to make people feel welcome to what he was doing and what his people had Given us as a gift. He said to me at his 70th birthday at Wolf Shop, he said, You know, David, he said, this music they're celebrating before, he said, This music called jazz and all the arts of poetry and painting and acting and athletes and working people we've had in this culture, he said, are so beautiful. I don't know if America even deserves it, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway.
1: <laughs> Let me, if I could, David, turn to some of the other, because we have so many people to get to. Jackson Pollock, obviously the famous painter, the Abstract Expressionism, who died uh in a car wreck, and I think in his forties in the Hamptons. um He was a heavy in, drinker. In the fifties, excuse me. In the fifties, but I think he was in his forties, wasn't he? Yeah. And so in the 50s, he dies. He's in his 40s, and he dies in a car accident. Did you meet him at the Cedar Street Tavern? Is that where you interacted with him, like you did with Franz Klein? Or where did you meet Pollock? I mean, such a fascinating.
0: Well, I was told when I was in Paris, I knew Joan Mitchell, a great painter. Abstract expressionist painter, yes. She was four years older than me. I was just 24, but she was about 100 years older in terms of her sophistication and just a wonderful, intelligent, brilliant person. And she kind of befriended me and she said, look, when you go back to New York and you're going to go take the G.I. Bill and study composition and orchestration and try to play jazz in New York City, go to the Cedar Tavern and you'll see a lot of wonderful people like Larry Rivers, a saxophone player who paints. I had no idea even knowing and playing with him but after I got there that he was a, already a famous artist until I went to the a museum of Modern Art and Surgery George Washington, of course, to Delaware. And she also told me, of course, about Jackson Pollock, who I was familiar with, from seeing some of those amazing paintings that he made. So I went to the Cedar Tavern and all of these people, it was like a working man's bar in 1955, and the painters all looked like they were mostly carpenters or plumbers or refrigerator repairmen. They were all dressed up that way because they worked in their studios and would wear, you know, jeans and a simple shirt. And instead of changing into something more elegant and fashionable, they—that's the way they dressed when they went to the Cedar Tavern. So a lot of other people that either wanted to be painters or wanted to be artists or were fans that wanted to be part of that all kind of dressed that way. It was a, a dressed down. And the people who were the kind of the heavyweights of that time, Franz Klein and de Kooning, and of course Jackson Pollock, all you never would have thought were internationally renowned artists, because most of them had spent their lives really scuffling, having other jobs to support themselves, and when they became well known, almost apologized for that and were very gracious and generous in Jackson. Even though he drank too much, as many people did, was very shy, very warm, and brilliant. I knew a lot about American Indian sand painting, even as prize student of Thomas Hart Benton, and loved all kinds of music.
1: Where was this uh, Cedar Street Tavern, David? It was downtown? Was it in the village, or yeah? Well, it moved to University Place until it finally changed hands,
0: and originally. It had a different location, and it it was close to 9th and 10th Street and all the wonderful art, 10th Street art galleries are the places where Jack Kerouac and I did the first ever jazz portrait readings. All of those places were right around the corner from the Cedar Tavern. So that was one of the places that all the painters and people who liked abstract art went. And then in the, Venice buying a gal in 1956 when it became a prize winner, suddenly the international art world said these guys and gals who were painting this way are now creating art of significant value. And suddenly for the first time, Americans were considered to be the leaders in a new way of art.
1: Right, the abstract expressionism. As you said, shifted the art world fairly from Paris to New York after World War II.
0: Yeah, and so, so all the all the big collectors and very well-to-do people all suddenly started gravitating towards that and going to the Cedar Tavern so they could meet what they considered to be celebrities in a place where the idea of being a celebrity was totally shunned. The Lion's Head Bar where you could go, where all the writers or journalists met, if you indicated to any of the patrons there, the bartenders, that you were a star or you thought you were a star or you were looking to meet a star, you were really given the heavy no from the bartenders and from the people who went there. And the same thing was true at the Cedar Tavern. If you were respectful and behaved yourself, you could be invited by any of these famous painters to sit down at a table and hear them arguing and shouting at one another about art and get a crash course in
1: the arts. That's that's amazing. Well did this happen most nights, Dave, that you could go there and you could see De Kooning and you could see Pollock and you could see Klon. I mean, were they there half the week, four nights a week? Do you remember no, how
0: usually they? when they w- they were all hard working guys and gals, the women who were were Lee Krasner and all the other
1: De Kooning's wife Lee so, Krasner. Okay, so, so yes.
0: all these other amazing Grace and all these amazing women artists and sculptors and painters All worked hard, and then they would go to the Cedar Tavern, usually after supper time, and then hang out all night long, and then get up in the morning with a hangover very often, but go to work. They were very hard working, disciplined people, and the same was true with the writers, and the same was true with the jazz musicians and the classical composers. I met like Edgar Perez, whom I met in Paris in the same circumstances, all of whom really wanted to do something better than expected, all of whom had a work ethic, and all of whom would always take the time to hang out with some young person and encourage them to
1: pursue excellence. David, if if, if I had walked into the Cedar Street Tavern and I had seen... These famous people, de Kooning and, and Jackson Pollock and Joe Mitchell and Klein, would one of them have stood out to me if I didn't know who they were? If I was just someone who walked in from you know Russia and I spoke English and I, what did, was there greatness apparent to you, or was it just, or did it just seem like regular people? Oh no,
0: they, they were all just just people, and I think if they saw any person that looked eager and looked receptive. Flirting, something. They would come up and talk to you, and everybody, more or less, spoke to everybody else. There was no status. There were no a tables. There was no full greed ahead.
1: It's, a, it's amazing. With, it, that, that couldn't exist today, really. It seems like, right? Oh,
0: oh, it, it does exist today, and it's always existed. It's called. As what James Galway, the great Irish flute player, who I wrote a concerto for. When I said Jimmy. You're an inspiration to all of us. I said, like Duke, Ellington to the Willie Nelson and Fizzy Gillespie, Leonard Bernstein. Regardless of your international fame, you take the time to speak with respect to every person who crosses your path. Right. And he said, David, where I'm from in Northern Ireland, we don't endorse putting on airs. And that's the way all of these people were. Yeah. And they went to great pains stay that way and if they saw that you were snubbing somebody else and groveling in front of them because they had something that you didn't have that you wanted some kind of recognition for their work they would call you out on that and you know say you know have some manners and go apologize to that person Mm
1: -hmm. and don't act that way you were told that David, could I just take you in, because there's so much to get to the 1960s now, where you do the work with um, Splendor as the Grass, you work with Leonard Bernstein, who did, of course, the music for West Side Story. Could you just talk about Leonard Bernstein? What, what was he like as a person? I understand he people say he was quite difficult. Did you find that?
0: No. He was complicated. He was a, a true genius and a renaissance man like Leonardo da Vinci, I guess, must have been. He was a brilliant speaker, a brilliant writer. His television educational programs for young people were phenomenal. He was a fantastically good conductor and a wonderful composer. And he said to me, "What? Uh, when he chose me as in residence, the first one from the New York Philharmonic, and he said to me, what are you composing? I said, I'm finishing a string quartet. And he looked very sad, and he said, I never finished mine. <laughs> and yet, with all of his extraordinary world genius he was probably one of the best known people like muhammad ali i guess of the world sure he managed to still compose music and now Leonard bernstein the great personality great multifaceted genius is is no longer here but his compositions what he put on paper is beginning to be recognized and appreciated I thought of that when I conducted the wonderful orchestra at Carnegie Hall two nights ago and did my Elegy for Violin and Orchestra that I had written for ISTAC, no, I beg your pardon, for for, uh, a great Israeli violinist in 1971 and that finally had it performed all these years later in such distinguished company. Elvira Dara played it. All of these musicians, including people who played with the Philharmonic and the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra and orchestras all over the world, actually liked my music, and I was able to conduct it okay. And suddenly I said, boy, the thing I dreamed of when I was six years old, a big part of that. Here I was at 88, actually beginning to achieve what I hoped I could do and having it appreciated. And I realized that it just takes time and you have to just keep doing it. And sometimes it does take a long time. And Leonard Bernstein, I just wish, were here to see how much his compositions are now appreciated. And he, when he wrote them during his time, people said, well, here's a famous multifaceted genius, but he's not really a composer. He's a jack of all trades. Right. Now people see he was a very gifted person with many ways of expressing those gifts.
1: Let me and just, a, sorry, let, let me just, if, if I could just, just turn to the movies, David, like, talk about, like, if you could talk about the Manchurian candidate, some people think Trump was, Trump is like a Manchurian candidate for Putin, but, I mean, you look at uh, Frank Sinatra as a starring role in that, I think John Frankenheimer directed that. Did, did you get to spend time with these people, with, with Sinatra, with Frankenheimer? How did your interaction with that go, please, David? No,
0: I never met Frank Sinatra until about four years later when I was playing at the Village Gate, for a George Clinton party, and the actor Martin said in this big, beautiful baritone voice, David, Frank's in the basement and wants to meet you. I said, Frank who? And he said, Frank Sinatra. I said, oh, I went down. Because when I was there doing the score, even though Sinatra was one of the people who wanted me, and it shows my music because he felt I was someone who played jazz, and was a Stone classical composer, who was not a Hollywood hack, with eleven people writing the music for him or her, and wanted something that was original. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to be chosen, right. but I never. I, I, when I met Frankenheimer, I was doing music for Shakespeare in the Park at the Phoenix Theater and play with my jazz group, and his wife used to go to all the Off Broadway plays, and he was doing *Turn of the Screw*. Ingrid Bergman was in the, an Emmy on television, and he wanted something that this out of sort of like 19th century neoclassical music. And she said, well, there's this young guy, and I've seen his music in all these different productions, and he can write that kind of music. So even though I was totally unknown, he hired me to do the music for the, that Emmy award-winning television program. And then I did some more with him, And then he had me do the music for the Young Savages in 1960. So when On the Waterfront had come out as a film and they had taken Leonard letter Bernstein and Kazan had done the same thing with me that he did for Bernstein. He had me do Splendor in the Grass as a total unknown in spite of the fact that Warner Brothers didn't want some unknown person. And it came off so well. When The Manchurian Candidate was made in 1962, they started working on it. I was chosen by a miracle to do that and because Frank Sinatra and and Frankenheimer were so strong. Even though the Hollywood studios said, we don't want that guy, he's some kind of a weird freak that plays bebop and writes symphony music. They were more or less forced by them to use me anyway. And and Frankenheimer said, David, just remember two things. It's not a Chinese war movie and do what the film tells you to do so i was given complete freedom to choose the best jazz players that i knew and the best classical players that i knew and create a score and an orchestra that would use them to conduct it myself orchestrate it write every note and even play in it David, and to watch the film over and over i i loved working with frank and harry and with kazan And they were both brilliant at what they did. And they gave me a chance to do the best I could do. And they had the high ideals that I try to emulate today. And they didn't want a hack. They didn't want to use the Hollywood system where you have five other people doing everything and keep changing it around. And I was very fortunate to work with people like that. And that's why I'd never stayed in Hollywood because I realized I would be out there and either have to do some... Trash that I didn't want to do, or have other people write it for me, or worst case scenario, become a ghost writer for the next day with Amram when they got sick of me.
1: So that's what I was going to ask you. You don't regret then not being more commercial, David, and doing more films and sort of selling out, if you will. No, I've right. done some some uh, wonderful films. I just did a film score for Barbara Koppel, who
0: won two Oscars. Wonderful documentary a film about immigrant people, but Barbara does her own films the way she wants to do them. She loves making films, she loves what she's doing. And in spite of the fact that she won two Oscars, she didn't do any kind of junk and trash because she felt she could move to a different level. She did what she felt and still does. I just saw her the other night. She still does what she loves and feels she was put here to do. And thank you you for what you're doing and for raising the IQ of people by using the Internet and using electronics as a means of helping people to develop
1: themselves and inspiring them to be creative, to be intelligent, and to be part of society. Thank you so much, David. Have a good day. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, bye.